Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to Forgotten Classics. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 286, where we continue with The White Mall by Frank L. Packard. But before we do that, the podcast highlight. This one is, I guess you would call it a procast because it is on a radio station, but it feels like a regular amateurish podcast in the best possible way. It's called Imaginary Worlds. It's a bi-weekly podcast, which I would call actually bi-monthly, meaning twice a month. And it's about science fiction and other fantasy genres and how we create them in the modern world and why we buy into it. Or as the host, Eric Malinsky, would say, how we suspend our disbelief. Eric Malinsky is an interesting guy in himself. He started off as an animator and discovered that he really was enjoying more a different sort of career path. So he remade his career into being a storyteller for radio. Luckily for us, this is the age of podcasting, so you don't have to listen to WNYC, public radio, which you couldn't get unless you were in New York City. We can hear him here. And he's done all kinds of great highlights on, well, for somebody like me, it intersects with so many places in my world. He's done them about the Star Trek canon, meaning the books and rules that most fans feel like you have to follow for Star Trek and then the people who go outside those rules. He has done one about James Tiptree, who is a science fiction author who nobody realized was a woman for a really long time and what happened after that news got out and how it got out. Really interesting. He's done them about Salem, of course, you know, one of the favorite things, uh, looking at what's it like to be a promoter in, in the city that witchcraft has now made popular as a tourist location. He's done it about origin stories. He's done it about uh, one of my favorites is his recent one, which is called Beware of Cyber City. And that's about a three-dimensional model of a town that the military uses for cyber war games. Really interesting. And also, I'm really glad to know somebody's doing this. <laughs> Another favorite is one that he had done for a different radio station, or for maybe a different radio show, actually, I should say. And it's called True Vampires of New Haven. And it was a gag story, but a lot of people believed it. And it was this idea of what if you told a news story as if vampires were really a real thing and the police used to have ways to feed them blood so they wouldn't bother anybody and then the program gets shut down. Where do they go and what do they do? I mean, there are all kinds of really interesting explorations of fantasy and how it intersects with our world. So do give that a try. Now, back to the White Mall. The White Mall is up to her neck in the gang's latest caper. Except, it's a caper being run on the sly by some lower downs that nobody knows about. I can't believe that she was actually in there for the caper itself. And, what a coincidence, she knows the original victims. So, of course, we all want those people to be helped. That poor old couple who everything has been stolen from. 
How's she going to do it? That's always the question in Frank L. Packard books, you know. Everybody's always in an impossible situation. How is she going to pull this one off? Will she have to try to find the adventurer? Or can she do it on her own? When we left her, she was entering a side street after leaving, of course, a tenement that had been in total blackness, because that's the only way we can do it here. <laughs> Let's find out. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard Chapter 12 The Door Across the Hall It was many blocks away before calmness came again to Rhoda Gray, and before it seemed even that her brain would resume its normal functions, but with a numbed horror once gone, there came in its place, like some surging tide, a fierce virility that would not be denied. The money. The old couple on that doorstep, stripped of their all. Wasn't that one reason why she had gone on with Pinky Bon and the pug? Hadn't she seen a way, or at least a chance, to get the money back? Rhoda Gray looked quickly about her. On the corner ahead she saw a drug store, and started briskly in that direction. Yes, there was a way. The idea had first come to her from the pug's remark to Schlucker that, after they had secured the money, Pinky would return with it to the pug's room, while the pug would go and square things with Dangler. And also, at the same time, that same remark of the pug's had given rise to a hope that she might yet trace Dangler to-night through the pug, but the circumstances and the happenings of the last few minutes had shattered that hope utterly. And so there remained the money." and as she had walked with Pinky and the Pug a little while ago, knowing that Pinky would, if they were successful, carry the money back to the Pug's room, just as was being done now precisely in accordance with the Pug's original intentions, she had thought of the adventurer. It had seemed the only way then. It seemed the only way now, despite the fact that she would be hard put to it to answer the adventurer if he thought to ask her how, or by what means, she was in possession of the information that enabled her to communicate with him. But she must risk that, put him off if necessary, through a plea of haste, and on the ground that there was not time to-night for an unnecessary word. He had given her, believing her to be Gypsy Nan, his telephone number, which she, in turn, was to transmit to the White Mall in other words, herself. But the white mall, so he believed, had never received that message, and it must of necessity be as the white mall that she must communicate with him to-night. It would be hard to explain. She meant to evade it. The one vital point was that she remembered the telephone number he had given her that night when he and Dangler had met in the garret. She was not likely to have forgotten it. Rhoda Gray, alias Gypsy Nan, shuffled along. Was she inconsistent? The adventurer would be in his element in going to the pug's room, and in relieving Pinky Bon of that money. But the adventurer, too, was a thief, wasn't he? Why, then, did she propose, for her mind was now certainly made up as to her course of action, to trust a thief to recover that money for her? She smiled a little warily as she reached the drug store, stepped into the telephone booth, and gave Central her call. Trust a thief? No, it wasn't because her heart prompted her to believe in him. It was because her head assured her she was safe in doing so. She could trust him in an instance such as this because, well, because once before, 
for her sake he had forgone the opportunity of appropriating a certain diamond necklace worth a hundred times the sum that she would ask him yes if necessary for her sake to recover to-night there was no she was listening in a startled way at the instrument central had given her information and information was informing her that the number she had asked for had been disconnected she hung up the receiver and went out again to the street in a dazed and bewildered way and then suddenly a smile of bitter self-derision crossed her lips she had been a fool there was no softer word a fool why had she not stopped to think she understood now on the night the adventure had confided that number to her as gypsy nan he had had every reason to believe that gypsy nan would as she had already apparently done befriend the white mall even to the extent of accepting no little personal risk in doing so but since then things had taken a very different turn the white mall was now held by the gang of which gypsy nan was supposed to be a member to be the one who had of late profited by the gang's plans to the gang's discomfiture and the adventurer was ranked but little lower in the scale of hatred since they counted him to be the white mall's accomplice knowing this therefore the first thing the adventurer would naturally do would be to destroy the clue in the shape of that telephone number that would lead to his whereabouts and which he of course believed he had put into the gang's hands when he had confided into gypsy nan had he not told her no later than last night that gypsy nan was her worst enemy he did not know did he that gypsy nan and the white mall were one and so that telephone had been disconnected and to-night now just when she needed help at a crucial moment when she had counted upon the adventurer to supply it there was no adventurer no means of reaching him and no means any more of knowing where he was rhoda gray walked along the street her lips tight her face drawn and hard failing the adventurer there remained the police if she telephoned the police and sent them to the pug's room they would of a certainty recover the money and with equal certainty restore it to its rightful owners she had already thought of that when she had been with Pinky and the pug, and had been loath even then to take such a step, because it seemed to spell ruin to her own personal plans. But now there was another reason, and one far more cogent, why she should not do so. There had been a murder committed back there in that underground drug dive, and of that murder Pinky Bond was innocent. But if Pinky Bond were found in possession of that money, and French Pete, to save his own skin from the consequences of a greater crime, admitted to its original theft, Pinky would be convicted out of hand, for there were others in that dive who had come running along the passage to testify that an attack had been made on the door of French Pete and Marnie Day's room, and that the thieves and murderers had fled through the cellar and escaped. Her lips pressed harder together and so there was no adventurer upon whom she could call, and no police, and no one in all the millions in this great pulsing city to whom she could appeal, and so there remained only herself. Well, she could do it, couldn't she? Not as Gypsy Nan, of course, but as the White Mall. It would be worth it, wouldn't it? If she was sincere, and not a moral hypocrite in her sympathy for those two outraged old people in the twilight of their lives, and if she were not a moral coward, there remained no question as to what her decision should be. Her mind began to mull over the details. Subconsciously, since the moment she had made her escape from the cellar, she had found now that she had been walking in the direction of the garret that sheltered her as Gypsy Nan. 
in another five minutes she could reach that deserted shed in the lane behind Gypsy Nan's house where her own clothes were hidden, and it would take her but a few minutes more to effect the transformation from Gypsy Nan to the White Mall. And then, in another ten minutes, she could be back again at the pug's room. The pug had said he would not be much more than a half an hour, but, as nearly as she could calculate it, that would still give her more than five or ten minutes alone with Pinky Bond. It was enough, more than enough. The prestige of the White Mall would do the rest. A revolver in the hands of the White Mall would ensure instant and obedient respect from Pinky Bond, or any other member of the gang in similar conditions. And so, and so, it would not be difficult. Only there was a queer fluttering at her heart, and her breath came in hard, short little inhalations. And she spoke suddenly to herself. "'I'm glad,' she whispered. "'I'm glad I saw those two old faces on that doorstep, because—because if I hadn't, I—I would be afraid.' The minutes passed. The desolate figure of an old hag disappeared, like a deeper shadow in the blackness of a lane, through the broken door of the deserted shed. Presently a slim, neat little figure, heavily veiled, emerged. Again the minutes passed. And now the veiled figure let herself in through the back door of the pug's lodging-house, and stole softly down the dark hall, and halted before the pug's door. It was the white mall now. From under the door, at the ill-fitting threshold, there showed a thin line of light. Rhoda Gray, with her ear against the door-panel, listened. There was no sound of voices within. Pinky Bon, then, was still alone, and still waiting for the pug. She glanced sharply around her. There was only darkness. Her gloved right hand was hidden in the folds of her skirt. She raised her left hand and knocked softly on the door. Two raps. One rap. Two raps. She repeated it. And as it had been with Schlucker, so it was now with her. A footstep crossed the floor within. The key turned in the lock, and the door was flung open. "'All right, Pug,' said Pinky Bon. "'I—' The man's words ended in a gasp of surprised amazement. With a quick step forward, Rhoda Gray was in the room. Her revolver suddenly outflung covered the other, and her free hand, reaching behind her, closed and locked the door again. There was an almost stupid look of bewilderment on Pinky Bon's face. Rhoda Gray threw back her veil. "'My God!' mumbled Pinky Bon, and licked his lips. "'The white mall!' "'Yes,' said Rhoda Gray, tersely. "'Put your hands up over your head, and go over there and stand against the wall, with your face to it.' Pinky Bond, like an automaton, moved purely by mechanical means, obeyed. Rhoda Gray followed him, with the muzzle of her revolver pressed into the small of the man's back, felt rapidly over his clothes with her left hand for the bulge of his revolver. She found and possessed herself of the weapon, and, stepping back, ordered him to turn around again. "'I haven't much time,' she said icily. "'I'll trouble you now for the cash you took from Marnie Day and French Pete.' "'My God!' he mumbled again. "'You know about that?' "'Quick,' she said imperatively. "'Put it on the table there, and then go back again to the wall.' Pinky Bond fumbled in his pocket. His face was white, almost chalky white, and it held fear, but its dominant expression was one of helpless stupefaction. He placed the sheaf of banknotes on the table, and shuffled back again to the wall. Rhoda Gray picked up the money and retreated to the door. Still facing the man, working her left hand behind her back, she unlocked the door again, and this time removed the key from the lock. 
"'You are quite safe here,' she observed evenly, "'since there appears to be no window through which you could get out. "'But you might make it a little unpleasant for me "'if you gave the alarm and aroused the other occupants of the house "'before I got well away. "'I dare say that was in your mind, but—' "'She opened the door slightly and inserted the key on the other side. "'I am quite sure that you will reconsider any such intentions, Pinky. "'It would be very disastrous for you if I were caught.' "'Somebody is wanted for the murder of Marnie Day at Charlie's a little while ago, "'and a jury would undoubtedly decide that the guilty man was the one who broke in the door there and stole the money. "'And if I were caught, and were obliged to confess that I got it from you, "'and French Pete swore that it was whoever broke into his room that shot his pal, "'it might go hard with you, Pinky. Don't you think so?' "'She smiled coldly at the man's staring eyes and dropped jaw. "'Good night, Pinky.' "'I know you won't make any noise,' she said softly, and suddenly opened the door, and in a flash stepped back into the hall and closed and locked the door, and whipped out the key from the lock. And inside Pinky Bond made no sound. It was done. Rhoda Gray drew in her breath in a great choking gasp of relief. She found herself trembling violently. She found her limbs were bearing her none too steadily as she began to grope her way along the black hall toward the back door. But it was done now, and—no, she was not safe away even yet. Someone was coming through the back door just ahead of her, or, at least, she heard voices out there. She was just at the end of the hall now. There was no time to go back and risk the front entrance. She darted across the hall to the opposite side from the pug's room, because on that side the opening of the door would not necessarily expose her, and crouched down in the corner. It was black here, perhaps black enough to escape observation. She listened, her heart beating wildly. The voices outside continued. Why were they lingering there? Why didn't they do one thing or the other, either go away or come in? There wasn't any too much time. The pug might be back at any minute now. Perhaps one of those people out there was the pug. Perhaps it would be better, after all, to run back and go out the front door, risky as that would be. No, her escape in that direction was cut off now, too. She shrank as far back into the corner as she could. The door of the end room on this side of the hall had opened, and now a man stepped out and closed the door behind him. Would he see her? She held her breath. No. It—it was all right. He was walking away from her toward the front of the hall— and now for a moment it seemed as though she had lost her senses, as though her brain were playing some mad, wild trick upon her. Wasn't that the pug's door before which the man had stopped? Yes, yes. And he seemed to have a key to it, for he did not knock, and the door was opening, and now for an instant, just for an instant, the light fell upon the man as he stepped with a quick, lightning-like movement inside, and she saw his face. It was the adventurer. She stifled a little cry. Her brain was in turmoil. And now the back door was opening. They, they must have seen her. And, yes, it was safer, safer to act on the sudden inspiration that had come to her. The door of the room from which the adventurer had emerged was almost within reach, and he had not locked it as he had gone out. She had subconsciously noted that fact. And she understood why he had not now— that he had safeguarded himself against the loss of even a second or two it would have taken him to unlock it when he ran back for cover again from the pug's room. Yes, that room. It was the safest thing she could do. 
she could even get out that way, for it must be a room with a low window, which she remembered gave on the back yard, and— She darted silently forward, and as the back door opened, slipped into the room the adventurer had just vacated. It was pitch black. She must not make a sound, but equally she must not lose a second. What was taking place in the pug's room between Pinky Bon and the adventurer she did not know but the adventurer was obviously on one of his marauding expeditions, and he might stay there no more than a minute or two once he found out that he had been forestalled. She must hurry, hurry. She felt her way forward in what she believed to be the direction of the window. She ran against the bed, but this afforded her something by which to guide herself. She kept her touch upon it, her hand trailing along its edge, and then, halfway down its length, what seemed to be a piece of string caught her extended, groping fingers. It seemed to cling, but also yield most curiously, as she tried to shake it off, and then something, evidently from under the mattress, came away with a little jerk, and remained suspended in her hand. It didn't matter, did it? Nothing mattered except to reach the window. Yes, here it was now. And the roller shade was drawn down. That was why the room was so dark. She raised the shade quickly, and suddenly stood there transfixed, her face paling, as in the faint light by the window she gazed, fascinated, at the object that still dangled by the cord in her hand. And it seemed as if an inner darkness were suddenly riven, as by a bolt of lightning. A hundred things, once obscure and incomprehensible, were clear now, terribly clear. She understood now how the adventurer was privy to all the inner workings of the organization, she understood now how it was and why the adventurer had a room so close to that of the other room across the hall. That dangling thing on the elastic cord was a smeared and dirty celluloid eye-patch that had once been flesh-colored. The adventurer and the pug were one. Her wits! Quick! He must not know! In a frenzy of haste she ran for the bed and slipped the eye-patch under the mattress again and then, still with frenzied speed, she climbed to the window-sill, drew the roller-shade down again behind her, and dropped to the ground. Through the backyard and the lane she gained the street, and sped on along the street, but her thoughts outpaced her hurrying footsteps. How minutely every detail of the night now seemed to explain itself and dovetail with every other one! At the time, when Schlucker had been present, it had struck her as a little forced and unnecessary that the pug should have volunteered to seek out Dangler with explanations after the money had been secured. But she understood now the craft and guile that lay behind the apparently innocent plan. The adventurer needed both time and an alibi, and also he required an excuse for making Pinky Bon the custodian of the stolen money, and of getting Pinky alone with that money in the pug's room going to Dangler supplied all this. He had hurried back, changed in that room from the pug to the adventurer, and proposed in the latter character to relieve Pinky of the money, to return then across the hall, become the pug again, and then go back, as though he had just come from Dangler, to find his friend and ally, Pinky Bon, robbed by their mutual arch-enemy, the adventurer. The pug, the adventurer. She did not seem to grasp its significance, as applied to her in a personal way it seemed to branch out into endless ramifications. She could not somehow think logically, coolly enough now, to decide what this meant in a concrete way to her, and her to-morrow, and the days after to-morrow. She hurried on. 
to-night as she would lay awake through the hours that were to come for sleep was a thing denied perhaps a clearer vision would be given her for the moment there there was something else wasn't there the money that belonged to the old couple she hurried on she came again to the street where the old couple lived it was a dirty street and from the curb she stooped and picked up a dirty piece of old newspaper she wrapped the banknotes in the paper there were not many people on the street as she neared the mean little frame house but she loitered until for a moment the immediate vicinity was deserted then she slipped into the alleyway and stole close to the side window through which she had noted from the street there shone a light yes they were there the two of them she could see them quite distinctly even through the shutters she went back to the front door then and knocked and presently the old woman came and opened the door this is yours said rhoda gray and thrust the package into the woman's hand as the woman looked from her to the package uncomprehendingly rhoda gray flung a quick good night over her shoulder and ran down the steps again but a few minutes later she stole back and stood for an instant once more by the shuttered window in the alleyway and suddenly her eyes grew dim she saw an old man white and haggard with bandaged head sitting in a chair the tears streaming down his face and on the floor, her face hidden on the other's knees, a woman knelt, and the man's hand stroked and stroked the thin gray hair of the woman's head. And Rhoda Gray turned away. And out in the street her face was lifted, and she looked upward, and there were a myriad of stars. And there seemed a beauty in them that she had never seen before, and a great comforting serenity. And they seemed to promise something, that through the window of that stark and evil garret to which she was going now, they would keep her dreaded vigil with her until morning came again. Chapter 14 The Lame Man Another night, another day, and the night again had been without rest, lest Dangler's dreaded footstep come upon her unawares and the day again had been one of restless, abortive activity, now prowling the streets as Gypsy Nan, now returning to the garret to fling herself upon the cot in the hope that in daylight, when she might risk it, sleep would come, but it had been without avail, for in spite of physical weariness, it seemed to Rhoda Gray as though her tortured mind would never let her sleep again. Dangler's wife. That was the horror that was in her brain, yes, and in her soul, and that would not leave her and now the night was coming upon her once more. It had even begun to grow dark in the lower stairway that led up to that wretched, haunted garret above, wherein the shadows' stark terror lurked. Strange, most strange. She feared the night, and yet she welcomed it. In a little while, when it grew a little darker, she would steal out again and take up her work once more. It was only during the night, under the veil of darkness, that she could hope to make any progress in reaching the heart and core of this criminal clique which surrounded her, whose members accepted her as Gypsy Nan, and, therefore, as one of themselves, and who would accord her, if they even suspected her to be the white mall, less mercy than would be shown to a mad dog. She climbed the stairs. Fear was upon her, because fear was always there, and with it was abhorrence and loathing at the frightful existence fate had thrust upon her. But somehow, to-night, she was not so depressed, not so hopeless, as she had been the night before. There had been a little success. She had come a little further along the way, 
she knew a little more than she had known before of the inner workings of the gang who were at the bottom of the crime for which she herself was accused she knew now the adventurer's secret that the pug and the adventurer were one and she knew that the adventurer lived now in one character now in another in those two rooms almost opposite each other across the tenement hall and so it seemed that she had the right to hope even though there were still so many things that she did not know that if she allowed her mind to dwell on that phase of it it staggered her where those code messages came from and how why rough rook of headquarters had never made a sign since that first night why the original gypsy nan who was now dead had been forced into hiding with the death penalty of the law hanging over her why dangler though gypsy nan's husband was comparatively free these and a myriad other things but she counted now upon her knowledge of the adventurer's secret to force from him everything he knew and with that to work on a confession from some of the gang in corroboration that would prove the authorship of the crime of which she had seemingly been caught in the act of committing yes she was beginning to see the way at last through the adventurer it seemed a sure and certain way if she presented herself before him as gypsy nan whom he believed to be not only one of the gang but actually dangler's wife and let him know that she was aware of the dual role he was playing and that the information he thus acquired as the pug he turned to his own account and to the undoing of the gang he must of necessity be at her mercy her mercy what exquisite irony her mercy the man her heart loved the thief her common sense abhorred what irony when she too played a double role when in their other characters that of the adventurer and the white mall he and she were linked together by the gang as confederates whereas in truth they were wider apart than the poles of the earth her mercy how merciful would she be to the thief she loved he knew he must know all the inner secrets of the gang she smiled wanly now as she reached the landing would he know that in the last analysis her threat would be only an idle one that though her future her safety her life depended on obtaining the evidence she felt he could supply her threat would be empty and that she was powerless because she loved him but he did not know she loved him she was gypsy nan if she kept her secret if he did not penetrate her disguise as she had penetrated his if she were gypsy nan and dangler's wife to him her threat would be valid enough and and he would be at her mercy a flush half shamed half angry dyed the grime that was a part of gypsy nan's disguise upon her face what was she saying to herself what was she thinking that he did not know she loved him how would he how could he had a word an act a single look of hers ever given him a hint that when she had been with him as the white mall she cared it was unjust unfair to fling such a taunt at herself it seemed as though she had lost nearly everything in life but she had not yet lost her womanliness and her pride she had certainly lost her senses though even if that word that look that act had passed between them between the adventurer and the white mall he still did not know the gypsy nan was the white mall and that was the one thing now that he must not know and rhoda gray halted suddenly and stared along the hallway ahead of her and up the short ladder-like steps that led to the garret her ears or was it fancy had caught what sounded like a low knocking up there on her door yes it came again now distinctly it was dusk outside 
In here, in the hall, it was almost dark. Her eyes strained through the murk. She was not mistaken. Something darker than the surrounding darkness, a form moved up there. The knocking ceased, and now the form seemed to bend down and grope along the floor, and then, an instant later, it began to descend the ladder-like steps, and abruptly Rhoda Gray, too, moved forward. It wasn't Dangler. That was what had instantly taken hold of her mind, and she knew a sudden relief now. The man on the stairs, she could see that it was a man now, though he moved silently, swayed in a grotesquely jerky way as though he were lame. It wasn't Dangler. She would go to any length to track Dangler to his lair, but not here, not in the darkness, here in the garret. Here she was afraid of him with a deadly fear. Here alone with him there would be a thousand chances of exposure incident to the slightest intimacy he might show to the woman whom he believed to be his wife. A thousand chances here against hardly one in any other environment or situation. But the man on the stairs wasn't Dangler. She halted now and uttered a sharp exclamation, as though she had caught sight of the man for the first time. The other, too, had halted, at the foot of the stairs. A plaintive drawl reached her. "'Don't screech, Bertha. It's only your devoted brother-in-law. Curse your infernal ladder and my twisted back.' "'Dangler's brother? Bertha?' She snatched instantly at the cue with an inward gasp of thankfulness. She would not make the mistake of using the vernacular behind which Gypsy Nan sheltered herself. Here was someone who knew that Gypsy Nan was but a role. But she had to remember that her voice was slightly hoarse, that her voice, at least, could not sacrifice its disguise to anyone. Dangler had been a little suspicious of it until she had explained that she was suffering from a cold. "'Oh,' she said calmly, "'it's you, is it? And what has brought you here?' "'What do you suppose?' he complained irritably. "'The same old thing, all I'm good for, "'to write out code messages and deliver them like an errand boy. "'It's a sweet job, isn't it? "'How'd you like to be a deformed little cripple?' "'She did not answer at once. "'The night seemed suddenly to be opening with some strange, "'even preemptory vista. "'The code messages. "'Their mode of delivery. "'Here was the answer.' "'Maybe I'd like it better than being Gypsy Nan,' she flung back significantly. He laughed out sharply. "'I'd like to trade with you,' he said, a quick note of genuine envy in his voice. "'You can pitch away your clothes. I can't pitch away a crooked spine. And anyway, after tonight, you'll be living swell again.' She leaned toward him, staring at him in the semi-darkness. That preemptory vista was widening. His words seemed suddenly to set her brain in tumult. After tonight? She was to resume, after tonight, the character that was supposed to lay behind the disguise of Gypsy Nan? She was to resume her supposedly true character, that of Pierre Dangler's wife? What do you mean? she demanded tensely. Ah, come on, he said abruptly. This isn't the place to talk. Pierre wants you at once. That's what the message was for. I thought you were out, and I left it in the usual place, so you'd get it the minute you got back and come along over. "'So come on now with me.' He was moving down the hallway, blotching like some misshapen toad in the shadowy light, lurching in his walk that was, nevertheless, almost uncannily noiseless. Mechanically she followed him. She was trying to think, striving frantically to bring her wits to play on this sudden and unexpected denouement. It was obvious that he was taking her to Dangler. She had striven desperately last night to run Dangler to earth in his lair, 
and here was a self-appointed guide. And yet her emotions conflicted, and her brain was confused. It was what she wanted, what through bitter travail of her mind she had decided must be her course, but she found herself shrinking from it with dread and fear now that it promised to become a reality. It was not like last night when of her own initiative she sought to track Dangler, for then she had started out with a certain freedom of action that held in reserve a freedom to retreat if it became necessary. Tonight it was as though she were deprived of that freedom, and being led to what only too easily might develop into a trap from which she could not retreat or escape. Suppose she refused to go. They had reached the street, and now she obtained a better view of the misshapen thing that lurched jerkily along beside her. The man was deformed, miserably deformed. He walked most curiously, half bent over, and one arm, the left, seemed to swing helplessly, and the left hand was like a withered thing. Her eyes sought the other's face. It was an old face, much older than Dangler's, and it was white and pinched and drawn, and in the dark eyes, as they suddenly darted a glance at her, she read a sullen, bitter brooding and discontentment. She turned her head away. It was not a pleasant face. It struck her as being both morbid and cruel to a degree. Suppose she refused to go. "'What did you mean, after tonight?' she asked again. "'You'll see,' he answered. "'Pierre'll tell you. "'You're in luck, that's all. "'The whole thing that has kept you under cover "'has bust wide open your way, and you win. "'And Pierre's going through for a clean-up. "'Tomorrow you can swell around in a limousine again. "'And maybe you'll come around and take me for a drive, "'if I dress up and promise to hide in the corner of the back seat "'so's they won't see your handsome friend.' "'The creature flung a bitter smile at her and lurched on.' He had told her what she wanted to know, more than she had hoped for. The mystery that surrounded the character of Gypsy Nan, the evidence of the crime at which the woman who had originated that role had hinted on the night she died, and which must necessarily involve Dangler, was hers, Rhoda Gray's, now for the taking. As well go and give herself up to the police as the White Mall, and have done with it all, as to refuse to seize the opportunity which fate, evidently in a kindlier mood toward her now, was offering her at this instant. It promised her the hold upon Dangler that she needed to force an avowal of her own innocence, the very hold that she had but a few minutes before been hoping she could obtain through the adventurer. There was no longer any question as to whether she would go or not. Her hand groped under the shabby black shawl into the wide, voluminous pocket of her greasy skirt. Yes, the revolver was there. She knew it was there, but the touch of her fingers upon it seemed to bring a sense of reassurance. She was, perhaps, staking all in accompanying this cripple here tonight. She did not need to be told that, but there was a way of escape at the last if she were cornered and caught. Her fingers played with the weapon. If the worst came to the worst, she would never be at Dangler's mercy while she possessed that revolver, and, if the need came, turned it upon herself. They walked on rapidly, the lurching figure beside her covering the ground at an astounding rate of speed. The mad made no effort to talk. She was glad of it. She need not be so anxiously on her guard as would be the case if a conversation were carried on, and she, who knew so much and yet so pitifully little, must weigh her every word, and feel her way with every sentence. And besides, too, it gave her time to think. Where were they going? What sort of place was it, this headquarters of the gang? 
for it must be the headquarters, since it was from there that the code messages would naturally emanate, and this deformed creature, from what he had said, was the secretary of the nefarious clique that was ruled by his brother. And was luck really with her at last? Suppose she had been but a few minutes later in reaching Gypsy Nan's house, and had found, instead of this man here, only the note instructing her to go and meet Dangler. What would she have done? What explanation could she have made for her non-appearance? Her hands would have been tied. She would have been helpless. She could not have answered the summons, for she could have had no idea where this gang lair was, and the note certainly would not contain such details as a street and number, which she was obviously supposed to know. She smiled a little grimly to herself. Yes, it seemed as though fortune were beginning to smile upon her again. Fortune, at least, had supplied her with a guide. The twisted figure walked on the inside of the sidewalk, and curiously seemed to seek as much as possible the protecting shadows of the buildings, and invariably shrank back out of the way of passers-by they met. She watched him narrowly as they went along. What was he afraid of? Recognition? It puzzled her for a time, and then she understood. It was not fear of recognition, the sullen, almost belligerent stare with which he met the eyes of those with whom he came into close contact belied that. The man was morbidly, abnormally sensitive of his deformity. They turned at last into one of the east side cross streets, and her guide halted finally on the corner in front of a little shop that was closed and dark. She stared curiously as the man unlocked the door. Perhaps, after all, she had been woefully mistaken. It did not look at all like the kind of place where crimes that ran the gamut of the decalogue were hatched at all the sort of place that was the council chamber of perhaps the most cunning, certainly the most cold-blooded and unscrupulous band of crooks that New York had ever harbored. And yet, why not? Wasn't there the essence of cunning in that very fact? Who would suspect anything of the sort from a ramshackled two-story little house like this, whose front was a woe-begone little store, the proceeds of which might just barely keep the body and soul of its proprietor together? The man fumbled with the lock. There was not a single light showing from the place, but in the dwindling rays of a distant street lamp she could see the meager window display through the filthy, unwashed panes. It was evidently a cheap and tawdry notion store, well suited to its locality. There were toys of the cheapest variety, stationery of the same grade, cheap pipes, cigarettes, tobacco, candy, packages of needles. "'Go on in,' grunted the man." as he pushed the door, which seemed to shriek out unduly on its hinges, wide open. If anyone sees the door open, they'll be around wanting to buy a paper of pens, curse em, and I ain't open tonight. He snarled as he shut and locked the door. Pierre says you're grouching about your garret. How about me and this job? You get out of yours tonight for keeps. What about me? I can't do anything but act as a damn blind for the rest of you with this fool store, just because I was born a freak that every gutter-snipe on the street yells at. Rhoda Gray did not answer. Well, go on, snapped the man. What are you standing there for? One would think you'd never been here before. Go on? Where? She had not the faintest idea. It was quite dark inside here in the shop. She could barely make out the outline of the other figure. "'You're in sweet temper tonight, aren't you?' she said tartly. "'Go on yourself. I'm waiting for you to get through your speech.' He moved brusquely past her, with an angry grunt. 
Rhoda Gray followed him. They passed along a short, narrow space, evidently between a low counter and a shelved wall, and then the man opened a door, and shutting it again behind them, moved forward once more. She could scarcely see him at all now. It was more the sound of his footsteps than anything else that guided her. And then suddenly another door was opened, and a soft, yellow light streamed out through the doorway, and she found herself standing in an intervening room between the shop and the room ahead of her. She felt her pulse quicken, and it seemed as though her heart began to thump almost audibly. Dangler! She could see Dangler seated at a table in there. She clenched her hands under her shawl. She would need all her wits now. She prayed that there was not too much light in that room yonder. Gee, and just when I thought that the White Mall was pretty deep into the gang when we started, in the middle of that caper, and now we end up, and she's getting ready to find Dangler's hideaway. I was thinking about a few things during this. One is I was talking to Rose, my youngest daughter who lives in L.A., who's been listening, and she said she liked the White Mall because one of the things she was afraid of was that she was going to be all missish and have to be rescued all the time and not be able to do anything. And what we can see is that Rhoda Gray may be afraid just like all of us, but she just goes ahead and does it anyway. And I really liked the part in this one where her heart was beating really fast and she had to say out loud, well, you know, a good thing I saw that old man and his wife or I would be afraid. I, I'm not afraid. And I don't know about you, but I do have to stop myself sometimes and give myself a talking to, to get myself in the right mindset. So that kind of felt familiar. <laughs> like, oh, but, but I know I have to do this. So it doesn't even matter how I'm feeling. I didn't expect that kind of a real life uh, moment for me. Also, okay, big news. Rhoda Gray is not the only one who's doing the double dress up. We've got the adventurer who, the adventurer, and then the pug. I guess that's not a double dress up, but it's, he's going undercover, obviously, as the pug so he can get the info on the gang, and then get in there and scoop them ahead of time. I do <laughs> really love the irony of that, is that they're all dressing up and no one knows who anyone really is. Well, now Rhoda Gray does, because she knows everything. But did that make you laugh? Because I laughed out loud when I found that one out. Especially when she's like, what is this hanging from my fingers? Oh, man. I know what's going on. It made me laugh. I also was thinking about the White Mall's luck. And of course, that's what Frank L. Packard is writing in here. But she actually does some time reflecting on it, thinking, wow, good thing that Bertha's brother-in-law was there when I came up or they'd have been waiting and waiting and I wouldn't have had a clue. And I needed to find out where the dangler is. I kind of like it when the characters are self-aware enough to go, wow, that was lucky, when really what it is is the author going, okay, I had to do this. There's no way I'm around it, but let's just talk about it as if I didn't plan it. And then finally, kind of brought a little tear to my eye when Rhoda Gray was looking in and seeing the old couple after they had their money back. I 
kind of get choked up over it. Not many things like that happen in this book. You got to take everything you can get. <laughs> Next time we'll have chapter 15 and there are 21 chapters. So we're about two thirds of the way through the White Mall. And it is about time for things to be being found out, I would say. For one thing, I would like the adventurer and the White Mall to have an honest-to-goodness conversation that they're not constantly being interrupted in or having to run away from the police from or something like that. I'm assuming that's going to happen by the end. Also, you start to think, how is the White Mall ever going to get back to a normal life? That has to happen, too, by the end of the book. And we've got, what, six or chapters or something like that to go. So everything is going to start speeding up even more. So we have just a few more weeks, and then we will move on to some goodies that I have been recording, but those will stay surprises for us. If anybody wants something else to listen to later this week, Scott and I will be discussing a really fantastic novel well, it's not a novel. It's a nonfiction book called Endurance by Alfred Lansing. And it tells the story of Shackleton's trip to the Antarctic when their boat gets crushed in the ice and their journey, their endurance of the conditions that they have to go through to get out. It is really an amazing book. It was written in 1959, but I think there was some anniversary of something that came up recently. So the book just has been republished or brought to everyone's attention in the last year or so. There's an audible version that Scott says is really good. So I did want to tell you about that book because it doesn't read like nonfiction. It reads like a wonderful, wonderful adventure story. And I'm going to say at least half the stuff in there, you wouldn't dare to make up for a fictional novel. No one would believe it. <laughs> it's really incredible. So there's that as a reading tip. Also, I have been enjoying very much a series by Naomi Novik. N-O-V-I-K is the last name. And this is an alternate history series. I don't usually like those anymore. I've read enough of them, you know, tired of them. It's got dragons also, kind of tired of those too. But set in Napoleonic times, don't really care about Napoleon ever. But, you know, somehow she makes it work. And I saw Scott Sigler's review on Goodreads. He was so enthusiastic about the first two or three that I went ahead and found it available as an ebook to download from the library. So there's nothing like instant gratification, right? I immediately did that. And I really, really liked the first five books. I'm on book seven. It's going to be an eight book series. The eighth book isn't out yet. But even the ones that I'm not crazy about are still very entertaining. I just would like more story to go along with them. And I would say that the um, the main premise is that there are dragons, but it's not that there's magic or anything. It just kind of adds the air force element to the Napoleonic battles. So it changes a lot of the tactics that are being used. And of course, each dragon has a person who's, you know, he's attached to, 
but they talk. They don't have telepathy or a lot of things like you find in fantasy novels. And so in some ways, it's a straightforward sort of a military story. And then, of course, in other ways, as the books go on, you find out more about their lives, characters are added. And that's where the interest comes for me, even in the books that I'm not as crazy about, because I really love the characters and I especially love the humor of the books, which is done by a lot of seeing what the dragons think and say when they're not around the people because they have their own unique characteristics also. So if you haven't heard of those, I definitely can recommend them. The first one is called His Majesty's Dragon. Again, the author is Naomi Novik, N-O-V-I-K. And that's all you have to type into Amazon or Goodreads or probably your library, and you're going to find these books popping up. They've been around for a while. And otherwise, it's just hot. It's, you know, mid-September. Well, not really mid-September, is it? But, you know, we're in Texas. Now, I understand that by the end of this week, we're supposed to get a cold front so that the highest it's going to be during the day is 85. And I'm saying, wow, feels like fall weather to me. And I have been dying for football. I don't know about anybody else, but there's something about once the light changes and gets just a little more golden, I feel like I should be watching the Cowboys play every week. That's going to happen on Sunday. So I'm into fall and that's my favorite season of year. So I'm getting kind of excited about it. We're going to go on a trip to Houston to visit Tom's aunt who we haven't seen for a little while and who's been asking for a visit. We're really looking forward to that because you know, it's just that road trip time. And I've talked about that before, that time where just nothing really gets through and you talk to each other in a way you don't usually do, at least my husband and I and any other members of the family. But this time it will just be he and I do that. And I have an audiobook for us to listen to, which is The Thin Man by Dashiell Hammett, read by William DeFries. Oh, it's going to be great. So uh, we're really looking forward to that. It's like a tiny mini vacation. And I guess that's it. If you want to tell me about the books you've been reading or bring up a book you'd like me to read, although I have plenty on my list, you can email me at julie at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. You can leave a comment in the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, and I know that's not where you need to leave suggestions, but I do love a good iTunes review. So if you're interested, definitely do that. And of course, as always, thanks for coming by. We would not be reading The White Mall right now, and I'm having a great time doing it. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.